we've now got 120 people signed up for a Soho pub crawl. So we think we're going to have to, including everybody, Phil Dirtbox, Philip Salon, all the great <laughs> remaining characters of Soho. I was so, going to say that'll finish Soho off. Won't well, I think well, yeah, it's either a celebration or a wake. It doesn't really matter because they don't care. We're going to launch the book on April Fool's Day. The book is called Rebel Rebel, hmm. How Mavericks Made the Modern World. And it's Chris is a complete one-off. You must have met Chris at some mm-hmm. point. He was Blue Ronda yeah. Alaturk. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. ran the WAG Club for 18 years. His authenticity is beyond reproach. <laughs> but the idea of the pub crawl is that it was a level we put into the into the, the funding of the book, which is called Rebel Rebel, How Mavericks Made the Modern World. Push it again. And he got a massive sign-up. We've now got, as I say, 120 people who want to come on this, including Suggs, Kevin Rowland, Jerry Dammers, all the good guys. So, so Nikki, you sent me a message this week saying that you have read how many books so far in 2019? Okay, yeah, so I've read 12 books so far, and it's now mid-February. In 2019? Yes. Yeah. How does that compare with how many books you read in 2018? I think I probably read in 2018 12 books. Do you you realise that if you keep reading at this rate, you're going to beat Miller in the how many books? Yeah, it's good. It's good. Nice to have a little bit of a competition. You're going to hit the 120 mark, Mm -hmm. which I personally feel is slightly edging on the tragic. And what's your favourite book so far that you've read this year? Is it The Rainbow by D.H. Lawrence? I skipped that one. Convenient. I've got a list. You know, can I just say something before you skip <laughs> the rainbow? Matt Hall, our yeah. former producer, absolutely loving the rainbow. I know he's from Nottingham, but I'm just saying. Who? Matt Hall. And <laughs> Alice Jolly's a D.H. Lawrence fan, aren't you, Alice? Yes, I am there very much a D.H. So, Lawrence fan. So just saying. So let's hear what Nikki's got to say. <laughs> All Shall right. we, John? What have you got to say? I'm just going to tell you my list. Yeah, go on, let's hear it. Okay. This is... Okay. In one, becoming Michelle Obama. This is all quite mainstream. Bear with me here. Ghost Wall, Sarah Warren. Oh, my God, I thought that was incredible. No, it's not Sarah Warren, no, Sarah, is it? Sarah, Sarah, Moss. Sarah, Sarah Moss. Moss. Sorry, Sarah Moss. Amazing. Yes, that was amazing, yeah. Jilly Cooper, Jilly Cooper, Image and Prudence. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Educated Tara Westover. Oh, yeah. I liked yeah. that. Yeah. Recommended it. Putney. Zanofiev. Yeah. Yeah. Very, in, very interesting looking yeah. at sort of uh, paedophilia. Uh, Return of the Soldier. Heard of that? Uh, yeah. We may have something to say about that. And Is then. That in your number four slot? That was, in my, that was in my January slot. I read it a bit early. And then I went on to read Convenience Store Woman, which is a Japanese book. And apparently it's a Japanese version of Eleanor Oliphant is Fine which is a very popular book from last very year. Very popular book with many people. <laughs> Just not all. <laughs> Just not all people, apparently. Not all people. Well, then I decided to read the very popular book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah which I enjoyed. And okay. then I read Lisa Evans' Old Baggage. Yes. Hooray. Yes. Um, friend of the show. Friend of the show. And then I read The Rider, 1970s book about cycling. Oh, you were telling me about this. Yeah. This sounds brilliant. I was looking, I looked this up. It looks fantastic. Yeah, it's one whole race. That's all it is. One race. And Kilometer by kilometer in the 70s. The bike book, right? Yeah, it's written by the rider himself, yeah, Tim yeah. Crabb. Great title. Isn't it? it? Jilly Cooper would have been proud. <laughs> <laughs> and then the last book I read, most recent, was Smut, Alan Bennett, which I really enjoyed. Yes, that's on my must-get-round-to yeah. list. And I'm now reading an Alan Hollinghurst swimming pool. You're reading the swimming pool library? Swimming pool library, yeah. Why, why are you doing that? Why? It, I went to the library and Alan and Alan were next to each other. <laughs> In the LGBT section, yes. and I thought that was interesting. So, and, and, and to you, and to oh what? My God. Public libraries, listen to this. And what, and what do you attribute this upturn in your reading? Two things. Go on. Number one, I fell off my bicycle, so I've been going on the tube a lot. <laughs> Number two, I've been producing that listed. Yay! Do you think so? You sort of. And I asked the books for Christmas, so the most of those I got for Christmas, and then I went to the library. I think that's brilliant, though. And it sounds so patronising. Oh, I think that's brilliant. But I do think that's really great. But I feel like, I just want to say, I want to say thanks, because all I've been doing is reading and enjoying it, and also preaching about how much I've been enjoying all these books. So I've been telling everybody, you know, you must go and read X and Y. So I think one of, the th- one of the things that I find with doing this, or just generally, really, my reading in the last few years, I'm writing a piece for Boundless about this at the moment, everybody, which you'll get to read in a while. Yay! 
is in creativity there's a you, you talk about this thing called flow that once in musicians talk about flow once the once you're improvising you reach a certain point where where you stop thinking about what you're doing and you you attain this kind of level of creative flow and actually there are some similarities with reading i think once you've read one book that you like as long as you keep going you're not going to like the next book but you do build up a kind of rhythm in your reading which means it's more likely you will find a book that you like the trick is not to get off the bike when people say to me well how do you read so much why do you read so much a lot of it is just not wanting to lose the thread not wanting to lose the flow when you don't like something yeah when you're struggling and thinking oh i just don't get this i'm not feeling it how do you persevere it doesn't happen very often with me it's very rare that i read a book and i don't get anything from it Mm. there are books that i don't like and i don't admire there's always some little thing in that Mm. that that you think and don't you think this is this is the whole thing about social media why i love books why i love particularly love novels is and we'll get onto this i'm sure with rebecca west is that there are how how do you find sympathy for people whose worldview is so diametrically opposed to yours? If we can't do that, we're just totally doomed as a society. Maybe we just yeah. have to accept we're doomed and that there will always be these chasmic divisions between people. But I, I live in a small village and if I if I had to sign up to the political views of everybody who I spend time with <laughs> and enjoy time with, I I wouldn't have I wouldn't be able to I wouldn't leave be lived over the fucking house I would just literally I mean you must have this as well yep, yeah yeah <laughs> it's kind of, it, so it's the problem of the countryside don't, don't but but Twitter life. is this sort of it, it's this enforced articulacy about everything that is I think a slight problem yeah. we're, we're we're forced to say what we think about everything and if we we're forced to think about it in some sort of nuanced intelligent way we will alienate as many people as we'll attract. And then you end up just attracting the people who agree with you. And then, frankly, society breaks down. But it's, Thank it's you all, for listening. It's, um, it's all how you use it, Sean. You know, if you, if you use it, you can use Twitter like yes. any other kind of, like money, as it were, uh, yeah. as an almost neutral force for good if you if only can. spread what you think is good yeah. as much as possible rather than spreading hate. Right. Let's go. Let's go. Come on. Go, you mean. Yes, I see what you're saying. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today you join us as the Great War is drawing to its close. I scanning the miles of emerald pasture land, looking towards the sleek blue hills on our horizon as we wait for a telegram telling us of our fate. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And uh, joining us today are Alice Jolly. Hello, Alice. Welcome back. Hello. Alice Jolly, novelist, playwright and memoirist who has won both the Royal Society of Literature's V.S. Pritchett Memorial Prize for Short Stories and the Penn Ackley Prize for Autobiography for Dead Babies and Seaside Towns, and whose latest novel, Mary Ann Sait, Imbecile, was my colleague John Mitchinson's favourite novel of last year. And uh, you came on to Backlisted about three years ago, we think. You were one of the very supportive early guests. Early adopters, yes. Who came true. on. We did um, The Great Fire by Shirley Hazard, didn't we? Yes, that's right, yeah, yes. Uh, and um, I was saying to you earlier that I wish we could go back and do that episode again, only because I don't think I was f- entirely open to the book. I think if we did it now, I'd be far more enthusiastic. Yes, I seem to remember you were a little bit uh, I was lu- <laughs> lukewarm about it. And I was Sucky. disappointed Sucky in you. Thoughtful. <laughs> in me, yes. One I of know. the very few occasions where Andy and I have slightly diverged on, on, on uh, a novel. We still haven't done Somerset Morn. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> that's right. And I'm with uh, Rebecca West on some. Okay, level. good. Uh, and we're also joined today by Amanda Craig, novelist, critic, and author of a sequence of seven novels, including A Vicious Circle, and most recently, the brilliant State of the Nation novel, The Lie of the Land, which was serialised on Book at Bedtime on Radio Four last year, and which I predict other exciting developments, which none of us can talk <laughs> about. Talk about welcome, yet. welcome, Amanda. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And the book 
that Alice and Amanda are here to talk to us about is The Return of the Soldier, the first novel by Rebecca West, first published in 1918 when she was only 24. But before we come on to The Return of the Soldier, John, what have you been reading this week? I've been reading something of a massive pleasure and deliciousness. For me, one of my favourite writers in the whole world is Julia Blackburn, and she has produced yet another uncategorizable masterpiece, which is Time Song. Her, her last book, Threads, was an amazing kind of biography of a man called John Krask, who was a, who was a sort of weaver in Norfolk. This book is woven out of two main strands. One is her interest and kind of obsession with Doggerland, which is the lost land between east coast of England and Holland the bit of England that, that is Europe. I mean, it's a fantastically prescient book in, in this year of Brexit because most of the book is about the fact that for most of the last 20,000 years, we were deeply part of Europe and the Rhine and the Thames and the Elbe were all rivers that flowed across the same plain. Um, it's also a kind of, I guess, a threnody on the death of her husband and there are very, very few writers, I think, who can get away with that sort of uh, insane throwing up uh, material into the air and seeing what lands. But she has done this. It's first and foremost an incredibly physically beautiful book. It is her kind of her research into Doggerland and the people who live there and her attempt to reconstruct that extraordinary 99% of human history the history of homo sapiens has been hunter gatherer and um she's trying to she's trying to understand what that that life was like and she does that through research through talking to an incredible number of eccentric uh collectors who've collected mammoth bones and bits and pieces of sort of human flint and genuine archaeologists who've gone and found in haysborough in in norfolk the oldest evidence of human life is a beautiful sequence of footprints now disappeared of a family walking across the sand so she goes there she goes and she sits next to Tolland man in a in a museum in in Denmark Tolland man died 2000 years ago in a swamp in Doggerland and his face his head is is still talkable to stubble kind of a hat on his head I mean wrinkles on his face incredibly well preserved so there's that it's a threnody on the on, on the death of her husband as well and that's kind of what gives the book it's an emotional i mean i guess chatwin zabolt you know if you're looking for people who but i think julia blackburn has been doing her own thing mm. daisy bates in the desert the book of color the emperor's last island she mm. is one of our great original writers and this book is it's a physically incredibly beautiful book through the narrative as well as the amazing maps of Doggerland as it as it develops there are 18 what she calls time songs with exquisitely beautiful sort of illustrations from um uh, Enrique Brinkman who's someone she's known since she was in her 20s uh, as a bit of bookmaking from Jonathan Cape it's hard it, it would be hard to improve on it and so what do you think? Let me ask you a publishing question. So who's this published by? Jonathan Cape. And Cape have been her loyal publisher for let, the last 25 years, let, let, right? Let me read what she says, because this, this is, um, as a, as a, just as a publisher, this is, this is very, 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 for me, very touching. Uh, um, Dan Franklin is a friend of mine, but um, she says, I think in the end of the book, she just... I don't know. I, one always hopes that somebody would say this about you as a publisher. But she says, My agent, Victoria Hobbs, who is your agent? Yes. Alice, has been an enthusiastic presence throughout the books. Dan Frank, my editor at Panting Books in America, offers some valuable advice at various stages of the work. And my friend, Dan Franklin, who has been my editor at Jonathan Cake for the last 28 years, understood what I was trying to do before I was sure if I did and followed the book step by patient step. Honestly, as a, as an editor, you know this. Mm. To have two sentences like that in a book is absolutely all you ever want, isn't it, from an author? 
Also, we should say and, something and nice the book about. Is a beautiful, beautiful thing. I mean, he he, throughout all the uh, labyrinthine difficulties of trying to get beautiful things made, Time Song, he's got this made. It's printed in the Far East, but it is a beautiful object to have. Also, we should say something nice about publishing, which is uh, publishers who get a lot of flack. But we should say something nice about Cape and Dan's. Support Absolutely. of Julia Blackburn over the years, over a number of years, and furthermore, writing a book which is clearly quite esoteric and will be challenging to sell in the marketplace as it is at the moment in 2019. So uh, I, I'm well, delighted she's written the book, and I'm delighted that she's supported in writing and the it's, book. It's the narrative through the book is it's not an easy book to write. What she's trying to mm. do is incredibly difficult, which mm. is to write interesting stuff about the past, and that I could the stuff I could read out of it, but. If you're interested in the fossil record, if you're interested about the the origins of humanity, if you're interested in the difference between Neanderthals and Homo sapiens, if you're interested in Starcar or Seahenge or any of the it's uh, or, or Hapsburg, uh, Haysburg, where where the where the, the footprints were discovered, it's I, what I love about her is she does it in a way, not as an expert, but as somebody who has that brilliant phrase of Alan Garner's one skin too few she's she feels this and the way she it could be it could be kind of crass bringing her own husband's death and but it's beautifully done mm. and and it it is the thing in the end we're all thinking about how do we make memorials to to the people we love how will they how will they survive after us how will we be remembered and that's what this book is about it's a beautiful beautiful book Andy, what have you been reading? <laughs> so, first of all, I just want to say, uh, if you're listening to this um, in the week before Sunday, the 24th of February, 2019, I'm doing a session at the Faversham Literary Festival in Kent on Sunday, the 24th at 12.30 with our former guest on Backlisted, Alex Preston, where we're talking about why some books are remembered and why some books are forgotten. Brilliant. I'm yeah. sure Alex will be talking about his choice on Batlisted, Haunts of the Black Masseur, uh, and I'm sure about, I'll be talking about some of the books that we've featured on the podcast over the last three years. So that is lunchtime on Sunday, the 24th of February at the Faversham Literary Festival. Come along if you are Kent-based. As to what I've been reading this week, last year on the podcast, we did a book by Alexander Barron called The Low Life. And um, regular listeners will know that I particularly love that book. It's one of my favourite books that we've done on Batlisted. <laughs> you were intrigued by what else he wrote. Uh, it was just a real treat to do this Jewish novel of East End, early 60s, gambling, kitchen sink in all particulars. It's just a wonderful, wonderful book. And I really enjoyed doing the episode. And one of the things that came up in the episode, you may recall, is that... There is a sequel to The Low Life called Strip Jack Naked, which was published in 1966, which is two years after The Low Life. And um, on the podcast, we said that, uh, uh, that none of us had been able to find any reviews of uh, Strip Jack Naked, except one by our dear friend Kirkdale Books, who had read it once a few years ago. And I asked him to <laughs> provide what memories he could of the sequel. And it just seemed really surprising because The Low Life is such a popular and talked about cult read that there's a sequel two years later. It's not only is it not in print, it's incredibly no, difficult to find. And, nobody, and nobody nobody's talks, read it. No. And nobody's read it. Until now. Until now. I found a copy of Strip Jack Naked in the London Library last week. It has not been borrowed for some time. Uh, but I borrowed it, readers, and I read it in about 24 hours. So that you don't have to. Well, I wish you could read it. I wish more of you could read it. It has a terrible reputation, Strip Jack Naked. And the reason I now understand why it has a terrible reputation is it does not have the same setting as The Low Life. So the low life is set in North London, the Jewish community, Dalston, Stoke Newington. It's very, it's very Ian Sinclair friendly. Strip Jack Naked is set in Venice <laughs> and is not very Ian Sinclair friendly. It's like uh, Alexander Barron took the character uh, of Harry Boy Burse and I, the, the, the analogy that I think we used on the podcast but is worth repeating is 
if the low life is the Ipcrest file, by, by the film of the Ipcrest file with Harry Palmer in the kind of in the kind of sort of the anti-bond setting, then two films later they make Billion Dollar Brain, where they take Harry Palmer and they put him in Moscow in this ridiculous. Ken Russell directs it. This is a Ken Russell keeps coming up on this podcast quite a lot. Um, the crimes perpetrated by Ken Russell. Anyway. <laughs> Strip Jack Naked is to the low life as Billion Dollar Brain is to the Ipcrest file. In other words, he's taken the character very recognisably and consistently, the character of Harry Boy from the low life, and he's done something completely different and arguably ill-advised with that character. (laughs) Readers. I found it tremendously entertaining. It isn't the low life. It doesn't have that same feeling of verite about it. But it, what it does have is what a lot of mid-60s things would have. And remember, this was written in the mid-60s. It's like a caper movie. So you've taken this Jewish lying gambler and you've made him the very improbable hero of a romantic caper taking you through Paris and Venice. So if you're up for that, it's a very enjoyable read. Now, it's not in print. It's very expensive secondhand. I'm just going to read you the first couple of paragraphs, which I realise, this is tremendously exciting, more people will hear and have read the opening paragraphs of Strip Jack Naked as a result of me reading them out in the next three minutes than have been able to read it for the last 50 years. This is how this book begins. And those of you like The Low Life, you will recognise this as by the same author, about the same character. Okay. Strip Jack Naked, Alexander Barron, 1966. Chapter one. Chapter one. This story is about why I went from Paris to Venice with a girl who was half my age and who, at that, was not my type at all. (laughs) First of all, I better explain how I came to be living in Paris. The name of Harry Boas, Harry Boy, my friends call me, is well known by the insiders at all London dog tracks, not only in Hackney, where I normally live, but all over town, as well as in numerous clubs up west. I'm 45, I have never married, and I have no family ties except my sister Debbie, who has a wealthy husband, three daughters, and a big suburban house. I am a gambler, but I am not in the international class. Between times, I work in the tailoring trade. Thus, I am not setting up to be one of those debonair characters who are supposed to saunter about in white tuxedos on the terraces at Monte Carlo, or lose thousands at Crockford's, or take Italian film actresses to watch their horses run at Ascot. And then he talks about how he met a girl in a bookshop on the left bank in Paris. I was in a bookshop one afternoon. A girl sat at the back of the shop reading. I hadn't seen her there before. She ignored me. I ignored her. I found a paperback of Three Men in a Boat, which I had read about 20 times since I was a child and was glad to read again. An old novel by Sholem Ash called Salvation, which I'd never been able to get hold of. And a Raymond Chandler. Freedom, he says, exclamation mark. Freedom, it's wonderful. Two months later, me and this girl went to Venice together. Could two people be more unsuited? A Cockney gambler of 45 and an American college girl of 23. But she was my girl, at least the people who knew us thought so. Brilliant. Now you're in, right? <laughs> you're yeah. all the people I, around this table are going, what, what's going to happen? I, I am in, but I'm, I'm thinking it sounds weirdly like the beginning of The Low Life. It's the same character <laughs> written in the same register yeah, 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 in a totally different setting. Yeah. I found it you completely entertaining, totally entertaining book. Seven out of ten. I would say a solid seven, maybe a seven, seven and, and a half, half to eight. There you go. Well, look, so, uh, so, yes, so there you go. Strip Jack Naked, Alexander Barron. Should we be thinking about pulling it out of the, um, out of the, the pile and putting it in front of people as a book? Yeah, I think so. I think it deserves to be read. Excellent. Um, a book that's never been out of print since 1918 is The Return of the Soldier. Am I right? I believe you are right. Yeah. First novel by Rebecca West, which was first published in 19... Well, the First World War is still going on, uh, written when she was 24. Yeah. And, Alice, you chose The Return of the Soldier. 
Can you remember when you first read this book? I was a teenager and I just thought it was the best thing I'd ever read. And I think I've read it four <laughs> or five times since probably. But I came to it this time, you know, I think you're always a little bit nervous when you haven't read something for a while because you're always thinking, is this going to be the moment when I think, oh, actually, do you know, it wasn't actually quite that the good. Ra- the rainbow moment. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. But coming back to it again, it's still just as good. And I'm still amazed by it as I was when I first read it. And Amanda, we... we I know you wrote the uh, introduction, didn't you, to another one of Rebecca West's books, The Fountain Over Flows. Where did you uh, first encounter Rebecca West? Can you remember when you first became aware of her as a writer? I think I encountered her when I was at school again as a teenager and she was someone who I think I must have found one of these sort of battered old copies she was she was very unfashionable was this pre pre virago kind of this was just probably yeah just as virago was getting going um and um it for a while although i do remember being very impressed with it it did kind of merge with uh the go-between in my (laughs) mind uh you know because both both Mm. novels so influenced by the first world war about you know trauma shock i would triangulate that with the jl carr month in the country that which i also love there's a kind of brilliant short intense that almost i mean they're novellas almost rather than it really reminded i i was going to say that later on yeah. it really reminded me of a month in the country yeah. and yet but if i i can't quite put my finger on why i mean i think length is probably part no, of it I, I don't think it's i think it's it's because there's a sort of high concept what we would call now a high concept thing going on which is that you you know it's about how do you play out the disability thing which is there in mm-hmm. in um, month and country, yeah. but also the 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 Donne, you know, in this book is so unexpected. And of course, you, when you when you you know, it's it feels like a trick, except you go back and you read around it, and you realise that amnesia was massive problem mm-hmm. for a lot of of war veterans. But she's using it to tell a story about men and women and class mm-hmm. and love. And I can't believe I've got to fifty five and not read this book. <laughs> Amanda, you were saying that she was very unfashionable, though. And, and she yes. was unfashionable. She was While unfashionable. being at the same time quite, having quite a high profile. Well, I think there were, there, were, there were probably two strands to this unfashionableness. One was that she was quite clearly, I mean, I've been reading this um, rather <laughs> wonderfully it, it, outspoken insane, and rude interview that she did with Marina Warner for the insane. Paris Review. In which she slags off T.S. Eliot, Ian Forster, Forster Arnold Bennett. Arnold you know, so some some people presumably on. still alive. Ian McEwan, you know, Iris Murdoch. You know, the list just goes on and on. And you read this and you think, my God! You know, I, I thought I was the only person who was as rude as this about people. <laughs> but um, no, she she um, she says what she thinks. And I think that, unfortunately, she she's also quite sort of nasty about them personally. And I think that's a mistake because that definitely left a sort of lingering yeah. bad in, odour. In her so. own lifetime, she was clearly extremely well known mm. and also had a strong sense of her own... This sounds like I'm... This is not a backhanded... <laughs> this is not an insult, but she clearly had a strong sense of her own preeminence, right? And we have a clip here. All the clips that we're using today are taken from a 1976 interview with Rebecca West that she gave to Ludovic Kennedy. And listeners will be able to hear this is someone who is not underconfident or or (laughs) short of a sense of their own. But, But, you know, consider what she had to overcome, which is still something that to this day women novelists Mm -hmm. still have to overcome, which is that you are automatically marked down as a woman writer and she 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 puts it very well about you know the the obstacles that you face and just imagine what it was like to have to be someone who had you know who was an edwardian and then who had an illegitimate child and this terrible affair with hg wells who one of the few facts i remember about her life is that he told her as a young woman that she smelt and from that day on she, for the rest of her life, she had two baths a day. I mean, this was obviously deeply wounding. I mean, whether mm. it was true or not, I don't know. But Let's allow Dame Rebecca to introduce herself. Dame Rebecca, 
Rebecca West is not your real name, is it? No, my real, my born name was Cicely Isabel Fairfield, which is a name quite impossible unless you have blonde ringlets and bright blue eyes. I had neither. Now, I read that you wanted to become a writer from uh, a very early age. Is that so? Well, we all wrote in the family. It was um, sort of a permanent condition. Um, my, My father was a writer. He wrote on politics and he was a journalist. And uh, I had uncles and aunts and cousins. It was something you did in the house, like um, embroidery or carpentry. (laughs) I mean, the thing about Rebecca West, which I had not appreciated before we started preparing for this episode, and before I ask you, Alice, about uh, the return of the soldier, Rebecca West was one of the most prolific journalists of the 20th century. And a brilliant brilliant reviewer. Non-fiction writer, constantly writing, constantly producing work. And in a sense, her novels are not typical of her output because she has a fiction career in the first, for the first 10 years from her mid-20s to her mid-30s. And then she has a a long two-decade break where she writes no fiction. Then she writes The Fountain Overflows. What is it about the return of the soldier which is so significant within her work? I think that it's quite different from anything else. And um, because I'm so interested in her, I read Victoria Glendinning's biography of her. And what I would say about it is that when you read about her life, you love the young Rebecca West. She's so passionate and interesting and all the rest of it. And then as you read more and more about her and her life goes on, you like her less and less and she becomes more sort of socially acceptable and somebody who obviously wanted to be sort of part of the establishment and wanted to be accepted. And I imagine that all this came down to the terrible shame that was hanging over her because of the illegitimate child, which, of course, at that time was just so shocking. You're right about her not being likeable. But she is also kind of like magnificent in her disdain for every. I mean, she. I have no idea really in the end what Rebecca West stands for, but I sort of love yeah. that she stands for Rebecca West, but, but, which is an invented name that comes mm, from a, a heroine in, 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 in an Ibsen play. Yeah. She is kind of amazing. So does that mean then that when The Return of the Soldier was published, it was a success or a failure or ignored or did her profile assist it or did it overwhelm it? I think it was a success at the time that it was published. But to me, what I would say is having read some of the other books, I don't think that anything she did afterwards measures up to it, to be honest. I think it's just this kind of unique, extraordinary kind of moment in time, this very short, very powerful book written by a young woman who must really have been in quite a state of crisis and and at a time when everyone was living through the crisis of the First World War. And as I say, I I think that it doesn't in a way fit with the rest of what she did as far as I can see. I I I think it's a a unique thing of its own. Yeah, yes, yeah. Well, I would say it's it's not as anomalous as it might appear. It's anomalous (laughs) in that it's, it's, it's so short and so intense, but... All her books, I think I'm right in saying, are tremendously concerned with moral courage and with cruelty yeah. and betrayal and the things that are their polar opposites like loyalty and generosity. And what's brilliant about The Return of the Soldier is that she distills this. It's like a Elizabethan dumb show for the rest of her writing. It's like everything, everything that's in... and. God knows, I've read three of her other novels in preparation for this. I don't think, you're right, Alice, I don't think anything quite achieves the the kind of intensity. But The Fountain Overflows, I've never read a book as good about childhood, I don't think. No, it's a wonderful and a, book. No, and, and the amazing thing you're saying about Rebecca West is that Rebecca West of the reviews I don't much like. The Rebecca West who is Rose in The Fountain Overflows I'd follow her anywhere. It's the most extreme example for me that I've ever come across of what fiction does that non-fiction can't do. So I'm going to read the blurb. This is from the most recent edition. 
which is the Virago, Virago Modern Classic 40th Anniversary Edition. It just says, Chris Baldry returns from the front to the women who love him, his wife Kitty and his cousin Jenny. But Kitty is a beautiful stranger to him and he recalls Jenny only as a childhood friend. Chris remembers Margaret Allington, though, whom he loved 15 years before. Though the years have changed her, Chris sees the girl he fell in love with. The women have a choice to leave Chris in the past where he wishes to be or to cure him. It is Margaret who reveals a love so great that she can make the final sacrifice. Now, that blurb is interesting because on one level I think that's not Pretty a good great blurb. blurb. No, I think it's not a great blurb, but I think the I think the focus on the female characters is absolutely appropriate and correct. If anything, Chris, where you would expect a different novel would make the shell shock victim the centre of the narrative. He's not the centre of the narrative. This is one of the very innovative elements of the book, I think, for a book written while the First World War is still going on. Not only does it acknowledge shell shock, mm. and we shouldn't forget that's actually quite a historic thing to have done, it then places it to one side in the narrative. Do you, th- do you agree? Yes. I mean, he's, he, he's, Victoria Glendinning actually says that he's rather boring. You know, he's the perfect boy. He's, although he's 15 years older than he thinks he is because of the shell shock. And really, this is a novel, that, that the fascination of this novel is that it's a terrible tug of war between two or possibly three women. It goes to the heart of something that we always love <laughs> reading about or seeing, sort of all about Eve, the battle you know, between the sexes, between between the same sex, these women who on one hand have no power, who are just supposed to be decorative and beautiful. I, I think one of the things that I impressed me about it most when I first read it, and which is very interesting because she was obviously writing a lot of feminist journalism at this time, is the way that she absolutely refuses to take sides in the battle between the sexes yeah. Yeah. in the sense that, Yes, the men have their wars and their businesses and, and all the rest of it. And, and, but at the same time, the women actually support all of that because part of the reason why Chris Baldry is the man that he is is because he has to support these dependent women. And his mm. cousin Jenny is the kind of woman who can't just go and get a job. You know, she has to be supported by him. And so it's a very much a book about the sort of war between the person that we really are and the person that society has made us. Yeah, but yeah. she's not blaming men for the way that society is. She's saying we are all complicit in building this society that actually isn't working for any That's of interesting, us. Interesting, yeah. Amanda, yeah. do you have a, a bit, I think you might have a bit to read that illustrates. Yes, right. well, this, this is a bit that, that, that <laughs> is a very controversial passage, the first of many controversial passages. But this, this is the thing that p- people love to quote when they're saying that Rebecca West is a horrible snob. No, she's not. She's writing about she's a horrible not, snob. She's not a snob, she's, 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 she's Yeah, but she's also, you know, brilliantly pointing out the nastiness of this way of looking at other human beings. So this is a point where Kitty, the spoiled, beautiful wife, first sees uh, the woman who is the the woman that Chris uh, remembers and loves and longs for when in his loss of memory, who's, who's called Margaret. Kitty shivered and muttered, let's get this over, and ran down the stairs. On the last step, she paused and said with a conscientious sweetness, Mrs. Gray? Yes, answered the visitor. She lifted to Kitty a sallow and relaxed face whose expression gave me a sharp, pitying pang of prepossession in her favour. It was beautiful that so plain a woman should so ardently rejoice in another's loveliness. Are you Mrs. Baldry? she asked, almost as if she were glad about it, and stood up. The bones of her cheap stays clicked as she moved. Well, she was not so bad. Her body was long and round and shapely, and with the noble squareness of the shoulders, her fair hair curled diffidently around a good brow. Her grey eyes, though they were remote as if anything worth looking at in her life, had kept a long way off, were full of tenderness. And though she was slender, there was something about her of the wholesome, endearing heaviness of the draft ox or the big trusted dog. <laughs> Yet she was bad enough. 
she was repulsively furred with neglect and poverty, as even a good glove that has dropped down behind a bed in a hotel and has lain undisturbed for a day or two is repulsive when the chambermaid retrieves it from the dust and fluff. I think that's an absolutely brilliant image. Also, Jenny, the narrator, is always... I noticed this on my reread, that she's constantly comparing Margaret and her husband to animals of some kind. So so Margaret, to her, is bovine. And when when she visits them at their house... Uh, Mr. Gray, she's keen to note the hairs on the back of his hand as though he was some kind of ape. Mm-hmm. You know that, but but that, as you suggest, is not. It's Rebecca not Rebecca West. West. No, it's Absolutely. the character it's observing the it, which character. is so good. Yeah, and of course, it changes massively as the book goes on. Yes. And again, one of the things that the book is about, I think, is the kind of clash between the spiritual woman and the material woman and beyond that between the spiritual world and the material world and so much later you know Jenny comes to this realization she says there is nothing more to us the whole truth about us lies in our material seeming and that's what the book does is that gradually no matter how dreadful Margaret's raincoat is and all these things she's shown to have this beautiful spiritual strength which endures through absolutely everything Mm. and which finally reduces them and all their petty snobbery to rubble. I mean, it's fantastic writing. It is brilliant. What's brilliant about the way that she depicts these two women is that Kitty, and the name Kitty, of course, is very significant, this little cat that Mm. has not grown up um, (laughs) but still got claws, uh, lives in this in this world that's literally black and white. She's got a black and white bedroom. She's got a black mm. and white vase. You know, it's, it's all really carefully controlled, yeah, this yeah. writing. But Margaret, who you think is so shabby and so plain and so old and so on, is she's not just a spiritual force. She's nature itself. And there's this utterly heartbreaking scene towards the end when you see... Chris and Margaret together in the woods, in nature. And she's just part of it. She's beautiful. Mm, mm. And she's the rawness is the rawness of nature. She's she's not she's not been corrupted by civilization. One of the things I think about Rebecca West, you know, she was tremendously well connected. There's no point pretending that she wasn't. And uh and she knew many of the great writers of the day. And we have a, this is a clip of her talking about Conrad, who she knew. And Conrad, who similarly, of course, Conrad was capable of writing a short, incredibly intense, dense book. You can see there's a sort of, I see a little debt to Conrad in The Return of the Soldier here. So let's just, let's just hear that. Well, there was something very beautiful about Conrad. Of course, Conrad had a very funny sides to him. Um, H.G. always used to say that to every two years he used to want to find out what it was that the English saw in Jane Austen. And he'd shut himself up in a room with um, the works of Jane Austen. And then the family would hear noises of broke, breaking furniture inside the room and he'd burst out and say, I can't understand it. And that was rather like him. I don't suppose Jane Austen would have understood Conrad. <laughs> Oh, I think she would. I think she had a, 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 a she was expected the animal to jump. She expected the male animal to jump anyway, but he couldn't understand it. But he was a sweet person. I'm with Conrad. I lock myself in a room every two years and try and understand what the English see in Jane Austen. I'm exactly the same. Yes. <laughs> no. But that phrase, that phrase, I was just saying to Amanda, that phrase that she uses there, she expected the male animal to jump. What a brilliant phrase. I don't even quite know what she means. But she saw men as animals. She's so interesting about the sexes. She's not predictable about Mm. the relationship between men and women. Alice, you've got a a passage there, right? So I was going to read just a little tiny bit. And actually, I can only read quite a bit because I quite a small bit because I find it very emotional to read this and this is the bit of the book that goes back into the past and I think this is actually right at the centre of the book and I think so much of the success of the book depends upon it because I think that all of us have a perfect time in our pasts that we can remember a time when we were young when we were in love when it was summer when we were by the river 
And I think that these moments in the past continue to grip us actually for the rest of our lives. And there is a sense in which all of us are permanently trying to return to those perfect moments in the past. Mm. So this is just the beginning of the bit of the book that takes us back to this place, Monkey Island, which was where Chris was as a young man in love with Margaret. From Uncle Ambrose's gate, one took the field path across the meadow where Whiston's cows are put to graze and got through the second stile, the one between the two big alders, into a long straight road that ran, very tedious in the trough of hot air that is the Thames Valley, across the flatlands to Bray. And obviously it is at Bray where it, they have this amazing encounter, which is so powerful for him that when his mind breaks, that's where he goes back to. And for me, I think, again, what I think is amazing about the book is I love a book that appears to be quite a slight and lightweight book. I mean, you could easily say, oh, this is just about middle class women yeah. and their troubles yeah. in war. And but do. yes, it, and people do. But actually, there's a massive philosophical question at the heart of the book which is about when we are most truly ourselves. And a key moment in the book is when Jenny discusses whether Chris is mad. Because, of course, if he's mad, what are they all making such a fuss about? It doesn't matter. But, of course, she realises that the awful thing is that actually he's not mad. As she said, he has attained to something saner than sanity. And that question is whether there is actually something saner than sanity, that, in fact, he should be always in this perfect world and we should always be in this perfect world but somehow she, we don't stay in it we grow well, up and she, create and she, we, and we i wanted to ask you because i i not having read it before and knowing that you've chosen it but the scenes of uh, margaret looking through the clothes of the dead child in the room and that experience of of the key without giving too much away in the in in the narrative but that is the that's the kind of that that's the twist in the book at the end she has to she has to find a thing that will unlock his memory of the past and i just wondered having knowing what you've been through whether that felt whether you you might you'd perhaps read that before what you've gone yeah. through and whether that had made an extra resonance for the book for you i don't know whether she Rebecca did lose a child but it was it's incredibly precise that those that scene of the looking through the child's clothes and working out what it would be that would unlock the memory seemed to me to be incredibly perfectly done yes and it's an amazingly painful scene isn't it because it's choosing to, something quite incredibly painful to sort of damage somebody and thereby to cure them, which sort of makes you think, so then what kind of cure yeah. is that? But I must say, it wasn't the children's clothes that really got to me. And I must say, when I was reading this yesterday, because I was recovering from flu, <laughs> I was actually weeping copiously. That's but true. it was actually her pushing the pram onto the bridge yes. to watch the train. Yeah. And we've all done that with a yeah. chi child, and we've all seen the tiny yeah. child's excitement about the train going mm. past. Mm. And that was yes. what was so heartbreaking. But altogether, the end of the book, it has to be done. You know, they argue yeah. it out and they realise that he can't be allowed to live in a delusional world. But you well, are just thinking... Please, please, can you just leave him there? And couldn't couldn't you leave us all there? That well, would the, be great. The, one you know? of the things that actually this, I said earlier that it reminded me of a month in the country yeah. by J.L. Carr. A thing that both those books do <laughs> is they plug into the English pastoral, yeah. the sense that you missed the beautiful England. The, you, it was gone. It was. It, it, it happened. You missed it. There was a, an Orson Welles famous phrase where the meadows all smelt sweeter, and the, you know, and and the narrator of A Month in the Country explicitly says we can never have that time back again. In this novel, I think the pastoral is used by Rebecca West rather brilliantly. In fact, while the war is going on, the mm. war is not yet over. To say. Something in England has been lost that we won't get back. 
You know, the the it's idea of it as power a of England, yeah, that the, the idea that she's writing it while the war is going on, and she is already saying, you know, those Edwardian summers that they enjoyed when they in their youth, that's gone now. Yes, and also, I mean, as John has already said, the whole thing about the shell shock and the loss of memory. I mean, obviously, there are masses of low-grade novels in which people lose their memory. But it is important to put this in context to say that this was the first time where that that kind of trauma had been seen on a mass scale. Yeah, and yeah. it was utterly terrifying well, we, to we have another clip now of um, Rebecca West talking about the difference between what a writer, what a novelist brings to a subject and what a journalist or a yeah. politician brings to a subject. To me, a writer is something that has to, uh, someone that has to stand apart from politics. You always have to know better than the men of action. You always have to uh, give the point of view that's not complicated by the fact that you have to bear responsibility. Politicians have to bear responsibilities for actions which depend on views of the moment, of the moment when the action is called for. Writers have to look at things from a more long-term point of view. See, now I find that totally fascinating. There is someone who has been a habitual writer. She's someone who produced tens, hundreds of thousands of words. Covered the Nuremberg trials. And well, also, amazing. Yeah, yeah. Incredible. And, and, yeah. and, but at the same time is able to say, well, there is, there are, there's writers and there's writers. There's types of writing. There's what the novelist can do. There's what I could do in my novels. And then there's another function for what a politician has to do and for what a journalist has to do. And they, they aren't the same thing. Yeah, no, she's quite right. But it's, again, a very unfashionable point of view because nowadays novelists are increasingly under pressure to say what we think politically. And, it, you know, we are probably coarsened by this. I was going to say, I think that that's one of the amazing things is the incredible kind of balance in the writing yeah. is the, the the fact that she's not really going to come down on one side or the other in, in, in anything. And she's leaving so much work for the reader to do. And I, I think it's also so extraordinary that she was 24 when she wrote this because it yeah. definitely reads like a novel written by a very wise, very yeah. old person. And also there's just a huge acceptance as well of the fact that we are going to have to bow to the needs of society that you cannot leave people somebody in this deranged state you have to you know she says magic circles cannot be allowed to endure and he has to be sort of brought back in I'd, some sense i'd like to ask um both our guests what the this this novel is um i've seen it referred to frequently as a modernist novel when i was rereading it, i was thinking i don't know if that's true what are the innovations of modernism that are in this book? This is not to diminish the book at all. It seems its strengths are in a more traditional craft. It's not like it's it's reinventing form, is it? Or is it? Am I wrong? No, I don't think it is at all. I, I think it's it, it's very traditional and that that's the strength of it. And it's also you know, its great strength is the power of the narrative. It's a very strong story. It, it contains a huge choice in the way that, you know, so many good novels do. So, I, yes, I don't see it as particularly innovative, but that, as you say, isn't in the least to take no, anything away absolutely. from the book. She does have some stylistic flaws, inevitable in a young writer. I mean, she she's overfond of the word moaned. And she does have quite a few split infinitives, which yeah. raise my hackles. And there's something more deep, which, which concerns me a bit, which is she's not really fair to Kitty, I think. No. She tells no. you what to think about Kitty on a in great In a way that she doesn't occasions. with either of... Yeah. She doesn't do that with it. She, she's direct. And I think that... It's interesting that she's so dismissive of people like Forster and indeed Tolstoy, who <laughs> are her masters, uh, in, uh, certainly where this, this kind of thing is concerned. You know, they, they would never be so coarse or so crude as to tell you what to think about a character. I think, you know, you, you, you yes. know some, someone like Natasha is just as beautiful and silly, but Tolstoy makes you see her her. her you know, that, that she hasn't had much chance to be anything else. She's been, you know. Do you not think she kind of corrects that in the later novels? I mean, I do think the 
of Fantineau's face. She's kinder, or, yes, to, to Cecily. Even though there are ob- obvious. But her 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 flaw to me as as a writer, sorry, in among all this this very deserved praise, is that she's someone who's very aware of kindness and the power of kindness, but she can't quite summon it into her own deepest self. I think. <laughs> oh, that's, that's, Ooh, that's, I love and, that. And I think you're right, Amanda. And that so. is a very serious flaw well, in someone who's trying to be, and in many ways is, a great writer. Let's, um, before we wrap up, there's one more clip from this interview with Rebecca West, which is fascinating. You know, she is somebody who became more celebrated for her non-fiction in her lifetime than for her fiction. So the rediscovery of The Return of the Soldier would probably be rather surprising to her, uh, I suspect. And she she wrote a book called Black Lamb and Grey Falcon, which is one of the great classics of 20th century travel writing. She wrote a book called The Meaning of Treason about... Um, yeah, the Nuremberg yeah, So let, this is a Rebecca West in the mid-1970s talking about how she thinks she will be remembered. What is the book or what are the things you've written that you would most like it to last? I don't care much about um, which book. Uh, my best work, some of my best work has been done purely ephemerally. I mean, in uh, newspapers, in reviews. And I think that if you want to re- read what Europe was like before the Second World War, the Balkans was like, I think Black Lamb and Grey Falcon is quite a useful book. I also think I wrote A Very Good Life when there was no other in English, oddly, you will be surprised to hear, of St. Augustine, which I think is really quite a good book. And um, uh, I like one or two of my novels. But as for lasting, I don't know if the universe is going to last, so um, uh, what of it? <laughs> and what of it? <laughs> and what of it? <laughs> great, great, great. Yeah. I mean... The bliss for me is just to have been introduced to her. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm, again, book, I, I, we say this all the time, Andy, but women writers of this indeed. caliber, my God, I mean, how I got to 55 and not read more of her. This novel is, I will say, as good, but the perspective is different. But for instance, The Go-Between, you know, yeah, you were yeah, talking about yeah. The Go-Between. This is a different novel to The Go-Between. It has things in common with The Go-Between. But the things that it doesn't have with, in common with The Go-Between are specifically that it was written by a young woman in the heat of the moment, yeah. in the heat of the war. And therefore it offers us something that perhaps other novels can't, uh, novels written with the benefit of hindsight can't. So the flaws that you were talking about, Amanda, which I, I, I agree with you, there's still something caught Yes. In yeah. the flame, in the moment, in this novel that you can't get anywhere else. No, it's, it, it is a wonderful, wonderful novel and all the more so for being so short. Well, yeah. I think that's the other thing we haven't perhaps said is the economy of it yeah. is extraordinary. There's not one pound of fat on the skeleton of the book, is there? There's not a word that could go or a scene. It's incredibly condensed and yet she gets it all in there and... and you know, that makes it, I think, all the more powerful. And again, very surprising that someone so young could sort of boil what they wanted to say yes. down to something yes, and I get agree. it yeah. into yeah. these strong yeah. scenes and put it over in that very clear and precise way. It's extraordinary. It seems a shame, obviously, to bring such a lovely discussion to a close, but I must huge thanks to Alice and Amanda, to our exacting producer, Nikki Birch, and to our long-suffering sponsors, Unbound. You can download all 85, 85 of our other shows, plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading on our website, uh, backlisted.fm. And, of course, you can still contact us on Twitter, Facebook and Boundless. If you've had as much fun as we all have, why not drop a review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcast fix. Toodle pips, whole beans. See you in a fortnight. And also, there is a film of this novel that we yes. haven't discussed. Which it's not we, worth discussing. Well, we, we, we've had, we're now yeah. going to have a we're fight as to, you we, fade this no, out. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with Amanda, but I can think I just it's say... Good. I think it was good. No, it's everything that's wrong with... British films. ...trying to adapt a book like this. To, I mean, beautiful performances, Andy. I enjoyed it. I think it had much to record.